Hello there, everyone. Christmas has rolled around again. This is the age of Victoria's third Christmas. What a year it has been. I've seen my daughter start her final year at primary school and my son move into primary school for the first time from infants. For the podcast, we've travelled together from Victoria's birth to her accession to the throne. It has included some very unhappy royal family moments and some really deep dives into politics and society during her childhood. I want to say a huge thank you to all of you who have listened to the show. I'm delighted that so many people listen and enjoy. I've loved getting the reviews, emails and tweets from so many people, whether in Australia, North America, Canada, New Zealand, Germany or Monaco. I must also say a huge thank you to my dedicated patrons, Michelle Gersick, Michelle Packham, Rob Coughlin, Steve Doc Pinko Cloutier, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Sean Warswick, Michael Rockwell, Amy Coldwell, Daniel Nikos, Bright Knight, Roberta Downey, Joseph Kapperman, JB Unicorn, and Ephemeral von Hinterland. Without you, I'd have far fewer research books or journal subscriptions. I can't stress enough how much goes into this podcast, and I really appreciate you helping share the load. If any listener wants to help out like that, head over to www.patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast. You can support the show for as little as $3 a month. That's like buying me a latte, really, whilst I work on the show. Now, I would normally do some listener reviews at this point too, because they're seriously appreciated, especially at Christmas time. But this is actually going to be quite a long show, and I've got quite a backlog, so I think we'll park them until the next mini-sode after Christmas. But please believe me, I do read all of the reviews, all of the emails and all of the tweets. I'm spending Christmas at my parents and we are off to my aunt's for Christmas lunch. So for once, both my mum and I will be relaxed and taking a break from cooking. What that means is that hopefully we will have some time for games. Everyone loves games, especially the enforced family fun ones with the complex rules that kids really don't want to play, followed by the family arguments. It's tradition. Our popular image of the perfect Christmas borrows a lot from idealised Victorian imagery. You know, all the quality street tin art, bows, ribbons, elegant men and women, snow and rosy-cheeked children, hymns, Christmas trees, Scrooge, and pianos. Last year, we talked about the traditions quite a bit on the Christmas special. This year, I want to break the image you might still have of the Victorians as stiff and formal. They could be, but they were as lively as us in many ways, perhaps sometimes more so. Today, I want you to see how vibrant and full of life a Victorian Christmas might have been. Like us, there would have been an extra 
bustle in the run-up to Christmas. Imagine the street stalls alone and how busy they could get. Journalist Henry Mayhew gave us a great description of the busy chaos of a London street market. Quote, Of these street markets, there are 15 held throughout London every Saturday night and Sunday morning. The largest, or rather the most crowded of these, are held in that part of Lambeth, called the New Cut, and in that part of Somers Town, known by the name of the Brill. They are both about half a mile in length, and each of them is frequented by as nearly as possible 300 hucksters. At the New Cat, there were between the hours of 8 and 10 last Saturday evening, November 1849, ranged along the curbstone on the north side of the road, beginning at Broadwall to the marsh, distance of nearly half a mile, a dense line of itinerant tradesmen, 77 of whom had vegetables for sale, 40 fruit, 25 fish, 22 boots and shoes, 14 eatables, consisting of cakes and pies, hot eels, baked potatoes, and boiled whelks, 10 Downton nightcaps, lace, ladies' collars, artificial flowers, silk and straw bonnets, 10 in tinware, such as saucepans, tea kettles, and Dutch ovens, 9 in crockery and glass, 7 in brooms and brushes, 5 in poultry and rabbits, 6 in paper, books, songs, and almanacs, 3 in baskets, 3 in toys, 3 in chickweed and watercress, 3 in plants and flowers, 2 in boxes, and about 50 more in sundries, such as pigs' chaps, black lead, jewellery, marine stores, side combs, sheep's trotters, peep shows, and the like. The generality of these street markets are perfectly free, any party being at liberty to stand there with his goods, and the pitch, or stand being secured simply by setting the wares down upon the most desired spot that might be vacant. In order to select this, the hucksters usually arrive at the market at around four o'clock in the afternoon, having chosen their pitch They leave the articles they have for sale in the custody of a boy until six o'clock, when the market begins. The class of customers at these places are mostly the wives of mechanics and labourers. That's from Henry Mayhew in the Morning Chronicle, 27th of November, 1849. For the post office, the Christmas period was a time of intense demand and pressure. With the introduction of the Penny Black in 1840, age of mass mail had arrived. The trains would carry letters, and suddenly mass communication was in sight. You might notice hints of our earthquake theme episodes that we've started. People had high expectations of quick, efficient delivery of letters. The post office had to hire seasonal staff to cope with demand. Still, It wasn't always enough, especially as the postal service had between 6 to 12 deliveries a day and even delivered on Christmas morning. One letter writer to the Times 
complained bitterly about the service, though. Quote, I posted a letter in the Gray's Inn Post Office on Saturday at half-past one o'clock, addressed to a person living close to Westminster Abbey, which was not delivered till nine o'clock the same evening. And I posted another letter in the same post office, addressed to the same place, which was not delivered till past four o'clock in the afternoon. Now, sir, why is this? There is any good reason why letters should not be delivered in less than eight hours after their postage. Let the state of the case be understood. But the belief that one can communicate with another person in two or three hours, whereas in reality the time required is eight or nine, may be productive of the most disastrous consequences. End quote. Okay, that's pretty self-entitled. But when people pay for a service, they expect the service. To us, the luxury of a same-day postal delivery is a dream offered only on a few products from Amazon. I can dimly remember my grandmother asking me sometimes if anything had arrived in the second post, but those days are long gone. To the Victorians, though, regular postal deliveries were the standard service and they expected what they paid for. Christmas made that hard. As always in Victorian society, the lower your class and earnings, the harder you tended to work, holiday or not. That meant casual staff at Christmas for the post office. In our last Christmas show, I talked about the various Christmas traditions, especially the Victorian invention of the Christmas cards, which added to the postal service's burden. The Victorians often sent cruel and insulting cards as a joke. Unfortunately, not everyone was amused. Mr. Pooter, for instance, seems not to have appreciated the arrival of the Christmas card in the post, saying, quote, I am a poor man, but I would gladly give ten shillings to find out who sent me the insulting Christmas card I received this morning. End quote. I found this quote on Dr. Bruce Rosen's excellent Victorian history blog, and like him, I'm gutted not to know what the card itself said. What about when they were done with work? Or the various traditions or the church? What kind of Christmas games did the Victorians play to relax? As always, so much depended on the social class and wealth of the people playing. Plus, games changed with location and which decade of the Victorian era they fell into. The games played by a poor family in Cornwall in 1840 would be very different from those played by a rich Anglo-Indian family in 1870, but not so different. There were plenty of classics to choose from. Blind Man's Buff was a long-time favourite. All you needed was a blindfold. The main player was blindfolded, spun round a bit to disorient them, then they had to catch someone else in the room. This was good fun, and it didn't require too much space. Kids could play, and it was usually fuelled by some nice wine or brandy. As an added bonus, young men and women who fancied each other could have the odd affectionate squeeze by accident, air quotes. The downside, of course, 
was that sexual predators of both genders could have a non-consensual grope. I should mention, though, that Victorian blind man's buff differed from the modern tame version you might know or see in films or TV series. Firstly, players were usually roaring drunk, and secondly, it was essential for players to put objects like chairs, tables, boxes, and so on, in the way of the blindfolded person chasing them. This added the essential risk of injury, so crucial to any Victorian activity, and it was much enjoyed. What could be more fun than watching a friend trip over a chair and crash to the floor, suffering various injuries? What larks! It was so popular, people grimly joked the game had been invented by country doctors to drum up business of fixing broken bones. One of the most exciting games, though, was Snapdragon. This was a game that was designed to get your heart racing. It was strictly adults only. It was easy to play, too. And I'll let you know how, just so that you can have a go in the event that you've lost your mind. So, you just get a large bowl and add 12 raisins. Then you add brandy till the raisins float. Now, everyone sits around the bowl and the host sets the brandy on fire. The lights are turned down to make it hard to see. Players must be close enough to have their faces illuminated. Then, each player takes a turn sticking a hand into the flames to grab a raisin. If a player gets a raisin, they must pop it into their mouth whilst it is still burning. Because remember, the Victorians only look boring in modern films, whereas in reality, as you know from this show, they were a damn lively bunch. Snapdragon was only played on Christmas Eve, but was so beloved that a non-Christmas variant called Flap Dragon was introduced. To play that, simply get a jug of ale, pop a tall lighted candle in it, so that the flame is just above the ale. Then, try to drink without setting your beard on fire. Hilarity ensued. By the end of the drunken evening, questions and commands was often played. This was truth or dare, but if you didn't either answer the question or do a dare, you either had to pay a monetary fine or have soot from the fire blown into your face and eyes. Naturally, some of the more serious Victorians were horrified by these amusements and turned to charades or the more child-friendly versions of Blind Man's Buff, like Squeal Piggy Squeal, which involved the parents being blindfolded, spun around, then sat in the middle of the circle of children for he or she tried to grab them. Another popular favourite was the Lookabout game, which was a form of treasure hunt. Plus, piano playing was hugely popular for the middle class, often accompanied by a singer. For the working class, the music hall, the ballad sung in the pub, or a visit to a penny gaff, were all ways to enjoy festive music. The penny gaff has to be one of my favourite Victorian gems. It was basically a pop-up theatre. Mayhew 
gives us a fantastic description of them. Quote, In many of the thoroughfares of London, there are shops which have been turned into a kind of temporary theatre, admission one penny, where dancing and singing take place every night. Rude pictures of the performers are arranged outside to give the front a gaudy and attractive look. And at night time, coloured lamps and transparencies are displayed to draw an audience. These places, formed by the coasters, penny gaffs, and on a Monday night, as many as six performances will take place, each one having its 200 visitors, end quote. It was sort of like amateur theatre mixed with a modern house party, but with cheap gin or rot-gut whiskey. They operated all year round and were filmed with what the Victorians might have called characters. Naturally, the middle class fretted about the working class morals, so encouraged more formal music societies, especially choirs or recitals. No respectable Victorian would be caught dead in a penny gaff unless they were a journalist or one of the upper class doing a slum tour. The middle class would go to each other's houses or church or perhaps a concert. Of course, perhaps some of the more wayward middle class men and women might slip off from their respectable friends for a while to indulge themselves with laudanum or a visit to a brothel. Whether going to the church, the theatre or the brothel, care was required. In Victorian cities, the predators were always on the lookout for the unwary. Pickpockets wanted easy to steal items like watches and handkerchiefs. Con artists stole goods or fleeced easy marks. Prostitutes built customers. Was a gentleman really going to call for the police? The lady decamped before services were rendered. Rothels had to be careful, though. Bilking customers could lead to powerful men seeking reprisals. For the upper-class man, a more personal courtesan might be a better long-term companion and safer bet, although she would probably demand eye-wateringly expensive Christmas gifts. Then there were the politicians. Christmas was a splendid time to get away from the Parliament and make political connections over boozy dinners at country houses. Who knows how many dodgy railway deals were settled whilst the children sang beautifully at the piano as Papa had a brandy and a cigar with his distinguished guest. What's that, Terry Pratchett said? If you had enough money, you can hardly commit crimes at all. You just perpetrated amusing little peccadilloes. Life is still life and always has been. Whatever your social class, music and dancing at Christmas was an absolute given. Whether in the Grand Hall or a tavern, music and dance was for all but the very poorest. If you were unlucky and your host was particularly religious, you might not get games or even alcohol, let alone dodgy money-making deals. You might be expected to spend an evening reflecting on the scriptures and reading a tract out loud. It nearly goes without saying that if you were the sort of Victorian 
invited to spend Christmas with the royal family, then you are absolutely not going to gamble, drink too heavily, or have a lazy time of things in bed with a couple of guinea-a-night companions. This was not the easy-living court of the Georgians, or the decadence of some of the European courts. Victoria and Albert expected high standards, and not a hint of scandal. Still, both loved music and Christmas. They fell in love over music, and were very happy playing piano and singing together, and they were both very talented. Victoria loved to dance. Albert was perhaps a little formal, and not especially humorous, but he was extremely clever, and a fascinating man to talk to about politics, engineering, architecture, culture, music, and plenty of other topics. He loved to have time with his children at Christmas. It was one of his favourite times of the year, and it was an occasion when he unbent the rules for them. Statesmen and artists were popular at court too. Plus, there was great food. On the Windsor Castle website, they describe setting out the castle for period-accurate displays. Quote, Known as the Victoria Service, this set was purchased by the Queen at the Great Exhibition in 1851 and includes four porcelain figures of the four seasons, ice pails, cream and bonbon dishes, and a pair of silver gilt sauce boats shaped like sleighs. During Christmas 1860, a visitor to Windsor Castle described the mighty sight of 50 turkeys being roasted in the great kitchen, a huge baron of beef, and a woodcock pie, 100 birds, presented to the Queen each Christmas by the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. End quote. You just had to be a very fast eater. Victoria ate very, very quickly. Perhaps it was making up for all those years of hardship growing up on a strict diet. She loved her food, and she wolfed it down. Once she was finished, the course was cleared immediately. So if you hadn't finished eating, well, that was tough. Your plate was gone. She didn't mind a drink either. It was drunkenness that she and Albert hated. She would enjoy a nice tipple of wine mixed with whiskey, so you would need to be careful as she had an iron head for her drink. There would, of course, be Christmas pudding too, a great Victorian tradition. It's been called a great British dish made with ingredients from everywhere else. And that's true in some ways. Christmas pudding required massive international trade networks and inevitably a lot of these were imperial. Indeed, George V celebrated the imperial Christmas pudding with recipes designed to showcase food from all over the empire. Just look at the ingredients. You had to have currants, raisins and sultanas, perhaps from the Australian colonies, sugar from the West Indies, cut candied peel from South Africa, ground cinnamon from India, cloves from Zanzibar, ground nutmeg from the West Indies, eggs from Britain or Ireland, rum from Jamaica or British Guiana, brandy from Australia, South Africa, 
Cyprus or Palestine. Of course, no one turned up from the destitute poor with hundreds of birds, turkeys or beef to roast. As you've heard in the show, the 1830s were bloody tough for the poor and the 1840s weren't called the hungry 40s for nothing. The rising cost of ingredients by the 1880s meant that the famous Christmas pudding got too expensive for many struggling Victorians, so newspapers looked for cheaper recipes. In the 1880s, the famous Cinderella clubs were formed. Where governments, the workhouses and the churches had failed, scandalised journalists, mayors, splinter churches and preachers formed the clubs to give the barefoot poor children at Christmas a hope of food and music. The initial idea was sparked by an outraged journalist called Robert Blatchford. He named the club after Cinderella, in part as a symbol of hope based on the popular story, and in part because he was so angry that there were children still living in barefoot poverty at the height of empire. He wanted to bring some food and music to them. Tickets were distributed to the poorest children, those identified as most in need. One of the first openings of Cinderella Club was described by the club secretary. Quote, There was a clamour at the door, long before the time fixed for tea. Many uninvited guests beseeched us for admittance to the feast. We fed the ticket holders first. There were originally 60, and as the catering was on a somewhat liberal scale, were enabled to admit the outsiders, about another 20, to clear off all the provisions so that nothing should be left. After tea, a capital land and entertainment was provided by Comrade Clouds of the SDF, interspersed with a few well-known comic songs, whose choruses were lustily joined in by the youngsters. And didn't they invest them with some lung power? We admitted all and sundry to the entertainment and completely filled the room. At the conclusion, sweets and oranges were distributed with specimen copies of the clarion. End quote. It was unashamedly socialist and was linked to the Sunday school programme where the desperate poor were taught the need for solidarity, mutual support and to fight for real justice. They knew the truth that the rich only gave back what they had stolen in rent and low wages, if forced to, and only in unity was their strength for the workers. For those above the desperate poverty line, the games on offer varied wildly. The author Thackeray mentions the noble fun of rat hunting or pheasant shooting on Christmas Day. Children often performed pantomimes or other entertainments for the grown-ups. This is an enduring tradition, and I can recall doing after-dinner speeches for my family when I was younger. Washington Irving gives a lovely description of being woken up early on Christmas morning. Quote, While I lay musing on my pillow, I heard the sound of little feet pattering outside of the door, and a whispering consultation. Presently, a small choir of small voices chanted forth an old Christmas carol, the burden of which was 
Rejoice our Saviour, he was born, on Christmas Day in the morn. I opened the door suddenly, and beheld one of the most beautiful little fairy groups that a painter could imagine. It consisted of a boy and two girls, eldest, not more than six, and as lovely as seraphs. They were going the rounds of the house, singing at every chamber door. End quote. This really cuts to the heart of what made a Victorian Christmas so different from ours. It was all done by people. There was no TV, no internet, no pre-recorded music, no microwave or electric oven. Entertainment couldn't be pre-recorded. If you wanted music, then for the bulk of the Victorian era, you either made it yourself or paid a musician to turn up and play it. That made it a more involved festival and much harder work. Above all, though, it was people having fun. As I've said on the podcast so often, the history is people. Without them, you can't have history. People want to feel alive, to seek joy and companionship, especially as they know how precarious life and prosperity really was. I sometimes think modern Westerners have mentally isolated themselves from the idea that things can get worse and so aren't able to see it happening around them. Christmas is one of the great ritual festivals in British history and the Victorians wanted to enjoy it as a celebration of life in an age of uncertainty and death. Perhaps one of the easiest amusements was to have a game of cards, versatile and with plenty of different games. They were ideal, although... To the ultra-religious, the association with gambling was enough to damn them. Still, I honestly think that compared to Snapdragon, a game of cards, a glass of whiskey, and a little piano is frankly sounding good. On the other hand, many religious Victorians argued that card games were intrinsically immoral, leading to vice and gambling. Let's have a look then at John, for example. He is a fine figure of a man. He's enjoyed Christmas, and in early January, he's having a game of cards with a man called Benjamin. They made bets on their game, and drank whilst they played. Tempers frayed, as John began to win hand after hand. Benjamin had to decide whether to take his losses like a gentleman, or to complain. He decided to call John out for his excessive good luck. This kind of incident was probably pretty commonplace, and a Victorian moralist would have tutted. This was exactly why cards led to temptation, they would sternly have encanted. Gentlemen watching would have doubtless been tempted to intervene to prevent a conflict. Benjamin decided to threaten John with a knife, saying he'd cut out John's liver, then produced a pistol to reinforce the message. He fired at John but missed. The unarmed John wisely left, and he later claimed that Benjamin came looking for him to settle the matter. Unfortunately for Benjamin, John had got his own guns by this point. Even more unfortunate for Benjamin was the fact that John was a fast and deadly shot. Perhaps one of the fastest the Old West had ever produced. One shot hit Benjamin in the head, and the other in the chest. It was not the first time John Wesley Hardin had killed a man. 
and it certainly wouldn't be the last. There weren't any gentlemen at that card game, and Hardin was a real killing fella, as they used to say. His gun holsters were sewn onto his vest, and he wore his revolvers with the butts pointing inwards. So he drew by crossing his arms and whipping them up at lightning speed. He must have looked like the Hollywood perfect picture of a guard boy gunfighter. We had a ghost story last year, so for today, you can have an action-adventure in the Old West. Of course, it is bad of us to glamorise the Old West and a murderer like John Wesley Hardin, but you can be sure Penny Dreadfuls and the press of the time certainly enjoyed splashing him around. Hardin helped make historians' lives even harder by writing a self-aggrandising and deeply unreliable book in 1896 called The Life and Times of John Wesley Hardin as written by himself. There are lots of myths and legends about the Old West, a lot of TV and movie cliches and a lot of the original press hyperbole. But what could be better on Christmas Day than watching a Western, right? Well, perhaps one day the Age of Victoria will take a long trip into the Old West maybe with reference to Sir Harry Flashman, fictitious hero and eternal rat. But if ever there was a real-life gunfighter, John Wesley Hardin could reasonably claim to be the genuine article. He's up there with Wyatt Earp, Wild Bill Hickok, Billy the Kid and Clay Allison. Just don't call any of them cowboys because they really weren't as such. Hardin was an outlaw, former teacher, failed lawyer at one point, but he only drove cattle for a couple of drives, and honestly they probably weren't his own cattle. While Bill Hickok was a lawman, Billy the Kid was an outlaw and a cattle rustler. Only Clay Allison from that list was a real cattle rancher, and he sometimes managed cowboys. He was also a vicious killer, and served under General Bedford Forrest as a Confederate soldier. These men were very much the exception in the Old West. Most men were farmers or drovers or shopkeepers of some kind, plus miners and trappers. Guns were common and many men were Civil War veterans, but very few were proper gunfighters. Hardin was a deadly shot and pretty accurate, something not always easy in the Old West. Jess Wolf Hardin, quote, Truth is, most gunmen on both sides of the law were notoriously poor shots, partly due to the scarcity and expense of ammunition and the scant practice they got as a result. Shooting one-handed made hits less likely than if they'd known to use the modern two-handed weaver stance. In a closed room, the black powder smoke from the first shots would make it even more difficult to identify and connect with their target. And alcohol was often a major factor. Take, for example, Wyatt Earp's brother Warren. In Wilcox, Arizona, in 1900, he got the worst of a gunfight by drunkenly standing up to challenge someone before he realised he'd forgotten his gun. End quote. When Hardin had his gunfight with Benjamin Bradley, he was probably carrying a Colt 44 Army 1860 model. This was a mass-produced gun, churned out in 
huge quantities. Quote, the weapon accommodates a 0.454 inch diameter round spherical lead ball or conical tipped bullet propelled by a 30 grain black powder charge in a paper cylinder. Soldiers preferred the latter as it could be loaded more rapidly. The paper cartridge and bullet were placed in the front of each chamber and seated with a loading lever ram. A percussion cap was placed onto a raised aperture, a nipple, and the back end of the chamber. Repeat the process five more times, and the gun was fully armed. The small copper percussion cap, when struck by the hammer, ignites the charge. The projectile, depending on the load, has a muzzle velocity about 900 feet per second, with an effective range of 75 to 100 yards. End quote. That's from a Varnum Continentals article on Sam Colt, the 1860 Army revolver. As you can see, it was a bit more accurate than a brown breast musket, but not by much. The legendary lawman Bat Masterson was so scathing about the poor accuracy of these pistols, he said, quote, If you want to hit a man in his chest, aim for his groin, end quote. Since the fight with Bradley was at close range, that didn't matter. Both men had been drinking, and neither had any body armour. What mattered was the first one to fire a shot that put the enemy down. There were no real rules to the gunfight. This wasn't the ritualised duel of the European upper classes, nor was it a stylized showdown on the street at high noon, where the townsfolk Expect the good guy to face the bad guy, mano a mano. This was strikingly similar to a modern gunfight. Two semi-drunk, armed men firing at each other in anger and not worried about the consequences till later. With most buildings made of wood, a stray shot could easily kill someone in the next room who seconds before had no idea they were in danger. It should be clear that most people didn't like gunfights or gunfighters and expected criminals who started gunfights to be dealt with harshly or run out of town. Gunfighters often avoided other highly skilled gunfighters and to be successful, you needed to be the kind who drew with reasonable speed and hit the target. What was usually at stake was reputation and rage. Harden was a dangerous man. Added to his natural talent for shooting, he had the self-discipline to practice with his guns every day. If you are a gun owner, or you are familiar with firearms, you know that the golden rule is to practice regularly. Today, that means regular range time, building up muscle memory, adapting stances to the weapon you are using, understanding your load and how it affects performance. You need to know how long you can fire the weapon, before your own performance drops and tiredness, you need to know what the limits of the weapon are. Responsible gun ownership is also important. You need to know how to maintain the weapon, how to store it safely, and you need to develop good muscle <coughs> muzzle discipline too. Only pointing the weapon at something you intend to shoot, never pointing the barrel at yourself, even if you're cleaning the weapon always assuming it is loaded, maintaining it regularly. 
It can't just be shoved in a drawer, forgotten, grabbed up a year later, and fired with any realistic degree of accuracy. A gun is a tool, and is only as good as the person using it. This was even more important for the people in the Old West. A cap and ball pistol is less reliable than a cartridge weapon, and a world away from a modern composite magazine gun. There's so much more to go wrong in some ways, plus you needed to set the percussion caps on top of the bullets in the chamber, and those could also go wrong. Gunsmiths were skilled individuals dealing with a wide range of guns and ammunition of variable quality and were expensive. So in practice, the gun owner had to be able to maintain their own weapons to a degree. Daily practice set men like Hardin apart from a lot of gun owners. To him, it was a tool that he learned inside and out. He did the hard work to master his weapons, and he certainly owned a lot of them during his career. Wyatt Earp was clear about what he thought made a good gunfighter. Quote, The most important lesson I learned was the winner of gunplay was usually the one who took his time. The second was that if I hoped to live on the frontier, I would shun flashy trick shooting as I would poison. I do not know a really proficient gunfighter had anything but contempt for the gun fanner or the man who literally shot from the hip. End quote. To many modern people, the six-shooter is a mythic thing that won the Old West. Years of Hollywood films, TV, and various computer games make them into magical items, totems of the frontier. In films, gunfighters often have signature weapons that are almost a part of them. This is a lot of myth-making rubbish, though. Guns were tools. People can certainly prefer certain tools and even develop an affection for them in the same way they get attached to an old car. But ultimately, for most people in the Old West, guns were an expensive tool that were needed to herd cattle, shoot snakes, hunt, kill injured animals, act as a status symbol or for personal protection and sometimes remind them of their army days. Pistols could be expensive, and ammunition costs money to practice with. Live fire exercises, critical for shooting though. If you really want to know what gun won the West, you'd probably go for a shotgun or a rifle. In fact, there wasn't really a single gun that won the West. It was a collection of Colt pistols, Winchester and Springfield rifles, shotguns, and buffalo guns like the legendary Sharps. The genocide of the native tribes couldn't have been done without the effective rifles that slaughtered the buffaloes in vast numbers. Of course, the other essential tools that really won the West and tamed the prairies and frontier were the plough and the axe. If you were a poor farmer or rancher, a shotgun was cheaper and easier to manage than a pistol. If you could afford it, a rifle had more range, accuracy, and stopping power. Pistols were not a soldier's weapon of choice in the 19th century. Infantry carried rifles. Cavalry used swords, lances, and frequently carbines. Pistols were a useful backup for cavalry in Mali, but the revolver 
did have some serious advantages in the pre-magazine rifle era, when a lot of military rifles were one-shot muzzle or breech loaders, a revolver gave six shots and could still be used up close. Dragoons and cavalry in the wars against Mexico and the Native American tribes loved them. Suddenly, they could fire more shots more rapidly whilst mounted. At the ranges of a drunken gunfight, a revolver was perfect if you couldn't grab a shotgun. Also, revolvers are fairly reliable, as they don't have much to go wrong. They were a huge improvement on the old flintlock pistols of the Napoleonic days, although these were still used in the early days of the frontier, especially in Mexico and Texas. For the majority of people, a fine pair of engraved Colt revolvers with ivory pistol handles and custom triggers well, would be like buying a Ferrari, expensive, impractical, and used only in specific situations or to show off. A lot of people couldn't even afford a proper Colt or Smith & Weston, so they bought off-patent copies and cheap revolvers known as suicide specials. Of course, for the lady or the shopkeeper, an easy-to-conceal pocket pistol was perfect. For the ultimate in concealed carry, a tiny four-shot derringer or pepper box pistol could be hidden up the sleeve of a shirt or in a petticoat, perfect for the gambling man or woman on a riverboat who wants more than a couple of extra aces and kings up their sleeve. Even while Bill Hickok had one slipped in his boot, just in case, of course a lady in some professions might well carry a concealed knife of some kind as well to fend off drunken advances. So the star of today's Christmas Western, John Wesley Harden, he was born in Texas in 1853, the son of a preacher man and a rather sweet mother by all accounts. His father retired from preaching and became a schoolteacher. When he grew up, Harden would sometimes go from smiling and joking to serious and quoting scriptures. At school, he got into a knife fight and nearly killed the other boy in self-defence. When he was 15, he had a wrestling match with a former slave, nicknamed Mage. He won. What happened next was controversial. Harden claimed that Mage took it badly, and the next day ambushed Harden to give him a beating. Mage was armed with a club and grabbed the reins of Harden's horse. Harden says he pulled his gun in self-defence and shot Mage five times. Then he rode off and got medical help, but Mage died three days later. Harden's father felt there was no chance of a fair trial for a white Texan killing a black man, whilst Texas was occupied by Union troops in the post-war atmosphere. So Harden went on the run. This sounds a bit dubious to me, but there was lots of tension in post-Civil War Texas. So perhaps they really did think the state police were a danger, as a third of them were ex-slaves, who presumably wouldn't be inclined to give the former slave-owning class the benefit of any doubt. I don't really have any good evidence on this, and even if it was factually true, 
isn't a great reason to go on the run after you kill someone. Honestly, it is hard to see a white boy charged with killing a black man in front of a jury in Texas in 1868 being in real danger. Perhaps they were worried about Harden being killed before he got to trial. Certainly the Union troops and state police in southern states in the immediate post-Civil War period were sometimes feared for the reprisals they meted out on ex-rebels or the ability to abuse their own position. But throughout his life, Harden did express racist and anti-Union views and was known to be a fairly ruthless killer. And he was now a killer. According to his book, the Union sent three soldiers out to hunt him down. He claims he killed all three. Make of that what you will. It seems unlikely in some ways. Harden was an unreliable narrator. But it's not like he didn't have a lot of confirmed kills too by the end of his life. He says he ambushed them, killing one with a shotgun, the other two with pistols. Accurate counting of the real kills in the Old West is quite hard. A lot of gunfighters were happy to lie or spread an enormous amount of bullshit about what they did. Billy the Kid, for instance, probably killed around nine people, not 21, as his legend says, which is still a lot more people than I think a civilian should be killing. On the other hand, an ambush, catching the pursuers unawares with a shotgun, could potentially drop the odds from three to one to perhaps one healthy soldier, one injured soldier, and one dead soldier against one. If so, then Hardin could have come out on top. This left Hardin with little option, and he decided to ride with an outlaw named Polk for a while till the heat died down. I'm not sure how the heat from killing three soldiers would die down, which makes the account more suspicious. Polk was soon being pursued by the army, and Hardin was lucky to avoid capture. He decided to try his hand at teaching. I've no idea why this appealed to him at this stage, but he gave it a go for a very short while. Then he went to Tawish in Hill County, Texas, where he decided to have his game of cards with Bradley. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we know how stupid it was for Bradley to cross Harden, but Bradley didn't. Which raises the question, why are some people so willing to get into fights with no idea of how capable the opponent is? If you sat down to have a game of cards with someone in the Old West, probably they were a farmer, or a miner, or a drover, or a shopkeeper. But equally, they could be a real stone-cold killer, like Hardin. And you have no way of knowing. It's not like outlaws always use their real names and announce themselves, unless they were sure it was a good idea. Plus, remember those concealed weapons I mentioned earlier? Perhaps the smiling, homely gentleman who offered you a friendly game and ostentatiously left his colt behind the bar actually still had a set of crooked dice plus a derringer on a spring mount up his sleeve and a flick knife in his boot. Maybe it looked harmless to Bradley. After all, Hardin was only 17 years old when he sat down for that game 
in January 1870, probably Bradley thought he could intimidate a young boy. Bradley was not going to be the last kill of Hardin's career. It was a pretty notorious killing, with plenty of witnesses. Whether it was murder or self-defence is debatable. Bradley had tried to kill Hardin in the saloon, over a card game, in front of witnesses, and it would have been crazy for Hardin not to have either armed himself or left town. The man who had held the money staked at the disputed game refused to turn it over. He disappeared. Allegedly killed by Harden, what's not proved, Harden was not a man to cross, especially for money, and people who did tended to disappear or turn up dead. He left town, pursued by a posse. They didn't get him. By the 20th of January 1870, barely three weeks after killing Bradley, Harden claims he was in a gunfight and killed a man after watching the circus. This isn't corroborated. A mere week later, he was in Cos, Texas, walking a prostitute home. The girl's pimp made the fantastically bad decision to try to strong-arm Harden for money. Harden tossed his money to the ground, and as the pimp bent down to pick it up, Harden shot him in the head. Like a lot of successful gunfighters, he knew exactly how dangerous a fair fight was, and he avoided them as much as possible. This means, by the time he was 18, he was known to have killed three men in front of witnesses, and might have killed another three soldiers, two civilians, and been in various fights. In 1871, he was persuaded to join relatives on a cattle drive, although it was other people's cattle they were driving, so actually this was cattle rustling. Just the thing for a desperado who wanted to get out of Texas for a while till the heat died down. Doesn't that just make you realise how cut off some parts of the frontier really were before the full expansion, railways, telegraphs and transformation of the frontier into settled territory that you could somehow ride out of state and leave those murders behind for a while whilst on this drive a freed slave named Bob King tried to steal one of Hardin's cattle. Hardin was convinced the only one around here doing any thieving was going to be him and his cousin so he pistol-whipped Bob round the head. Must have given Bob one hell of a headache and a possible concussion. Still, Bob was a lucky man. Three Mexicans who had a card game with Hardin ended up arguing over it. One got pistol-whipped, another shot in the arm, and the last one shot in the lung. Clearly Hardin was comfortable facing down more than one man. He did an even more action-packed cattle drive over the summer of 1871. During the drive, he was shot at by a native tribesman with an arrow, whom he swiftly shot dead. The body was quickly buried to avoid retribution from the tribe. Another encounter was more dangerous, as a tribe demanded tax from the cattle-driving group. Hardin refused and pistol-whipped one of the warriors who was trying to steal his silver bridle. A native war party 
attempted to steal some of the cattle, but were treated when Hardin shot one of them dead. When Hardin's stolen herd was bumped into from behind by another herd being driven by Mexican cowboys, tempers flared. One of the Mexicans decided to take a shot at Hardin, putting a hole in his hat. Hardin retaliated only for his percussion cap revolver chamber to misfire as it was loose. He calmly dismounted, steadied the loose chamber of his revolver with one hand, aimed with the other. His shot hit his adversary in the thigh. Imagine the nerves of steel to do that, getting off your horse under fire instead of running, taking the time to fix the weapon, adopt the right firing position, and then hitting the target. The two rival groups then declared a truce with honour satisfied. I don't know the name of these Mexican cowboys, as accounts don't give it, but if they had known who they were dealing with, they would have realised that this wasn't over. Hardin borrowed a working pistol from a friend and then went to the rival camp. He shot the wounded man in the head and triggered a firefight. It is believed around three Mexican cowboys ended up dead. Although Hardin had gone on the drive to let things blow over, he just added more notches to his gun. The various killings mounted up. He was involved in a revenge killing in Kansas and then got friendly with two local restaurant owners under an alias. These were pretty dodgy guys and they got into a feud with Wild Bill Hickok over an obscene restaurant sign they had painted. Townsfolk had complained and when they refused to change the sign, Wild Bill did it himself. The two restaurant owners tried to get their new friend to fight Hickok. Harden refused. He seemed to be a bit starstruck by Wild Bill. According to Harden, he bumped into Wild Bill Hickok, who told him that guns weren't allowed to be carried in town and ordered him to hand them over. Harden claims he offered Wild Bill the guns butt first, then suddenly spun them up and over back into his hands and into shooting position. This is sometimes called the Curly Bill spin and is a popular trick shooter's move. You can also see it adopted in the movie Tombstone. Was Harden fast enough to do it? Maybe. He did perform the trick in later life with what was called almost magical skill, but it seems a bit like a tall tale to me. He had allegedly got the drop on one of the Old West's fastest and deadliest lawmen. What makes it even more suspect is that if this were true, Wild Bill let a criminal, in violation of a prohibition on carrying guns, get the drop on him and get away with it. Lawmen relied on their reputations in the Old West. It helped keep them safe. Wild Bill would not have let this go. If Harden had really got his guns out on Wild Bill, you can bet Wild Bill would have been back and taken Harden in. I think on the balance of evidence... This is probably um, not a substantiated claim of Harden's, especially as when Harden was seen later with Wild Bill, he was allowed to carry his guns. There's no way Wild Bill would have allowed a man who had taken this kind of liberty with him to 
walk around next to him fully armed would have just been too dangerous. Most likely, Harden really was as starstruck by Wild Bill as claimed, and Wild Bill only knew him as the young fellow from the restaurant, who was an adoring fan. It couldn't last. In August 1871, Hardin and two friends got drunk. They turned in for the night. One of the friends, Charles Cougar, slept in the room next door and started snoring. Our drunk Hardin yelled at him to shut up. He didn't. Hardin yelled some more, then drunkenly fired his pistol to try and wake Cougar up. Unfortunately, the second shot hit Cougar in his head, putting him to sleep forever and with no danger of any more snoring. That panicked Hardin grabbed what he could and climbed out naked across the rooftops. In the street, Wild Bill and four shotgun-armed deputies were heading for the noise. Future writers would latch on to this and coin the phrase, a man so mean he once shot a man for snoring. Harden naturally gave contradictory accounts of the incident. He also claimed various gunfights and kills in 71 and 72. He eventually got into an argument over poker and was nearly killed by a shotgun blast from an opponent who had accused him of cheating. Harden hovered in a critical condition for a while. When he recovered, he decided to turn himself in so that he could be tried and have a clean slate to settle down with a girl. That went slightly wrong as a nervous deputy shot him. Harden also didn't bank on the list of murders the sheriff actually planned to charge him with, which was far longer than expected, so a quick jailbreak was arranged. He was out and soon involved with a notorious feud, the Sutton-Taylor feud. Since his cousins were aligned with the Taylors, he lined up with them. It decisively tipped the balance of the feud in the Taylors' favour. I'm not going into the whole thing here, because it is epic, really fascinating, but incredibly lengthy. Key Sutton leaders ended up dead, either by Harden personally or with his help. Some of these were lawmen, but he was involved in the arranging of a lynching for an unnamed black man, and this seems to substantiate the accusations of lifelong racism. He eventually overreached himself when he killed a popular deputy sheriff Webb in Comanche County. In the Old West, a lawman's popularity was an important part of his armoury. An unpopular sheriff who abused his office might get killed and no one would trouble themselves too much about what happened. Webb's death sparked popular fury. A mob murdered two of Hardin's accomplices and the tailors were left in disarray. Hardin had to flee, possibly killing some hunters pursuing him. He had triggered a firestorm. The governors put up a $4,000 reward and the Texas Rangers decided they were going to bring Hardin in. When they tracked him down, he allegedly drew on them, but his gun snagged on his suspenders, so they used the opportunity to overpower him. He was soon sentenced to 25 years in prison for murder. That's interesting, I think. Today in Texas, if you murder a few police officers in cold blood, 
for gang-related reasons, I sincerely doubt you'd only get 25 years. I suspect if your lawyer told you she'd managed to get you a plea deal for 25 years for that, you'd think it was Christmas. Harden didn't particularly enjoy prison and spent his time getting his law degree. He also studied theology and wrote his dubiously accurate life story. He reflected on his life of violence, saying, quote, Readers, you see what drink and passion will do. You wish to be successful in life. Be temperate and control your passions. If you don't, ruin and death is the result. End quote. He stated he had seen violence all around him at a young age, including some traumatizing incidents, and this had led him down the wrong path in the mistaken belief that violence was the appropriate response. When he got out on parole in 1894, after 17 years of his sentence, he was still only 40. He managed to get a pardon and then passed the state bar exam. That's pretty incredible, right? I find it stunning that in the age of the gunfighter, the old west, hangings and tough sentencing, Harden probably got a shorter sentence and better re-employment opportunities than a killer with his record could dream of today. According to a newspaper article, he did still kill someone though after he got out. He was doing a trick shot to knock a barrel out from under a volunteer. He shot the barrel and the volunteer actually died in the fall. God, I've not got much evidence to confirm this, so it might well be an embellished or completely made-up incident. Still, minor incidents of negligent homicide accepted, Harden seemed to be like most of the old gunslingers. The world was starting to change. The old frontier was closed in 1890. Police in uniform were appearing on the streets of some of the towns and cities in place of the sheriffs and the marshals. Wild Bill Hickok was long dead, shot in the back during a card game. So was Doc Holliday. Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the OK Corral were history. The last of the native tribal wars was over. Even Geronimo had surrendered. So why shouldn't an old gunfighter retire and become a lawyer? After all, this wasn't a movie. So he didn't need to go out on guns blazing to be a symbol of a lost way of life or whatever narrative a director has decided the public wants to see today. The Old West has always been an invention and a reinvention every decade since, mostly a highly airbrushed and stylized one. The genocide of the native tribes, the ruthless exploitation of the working class and the environment, the desperate struggle to survive, the endemic use of drugs like opium, wide-scale forced labour of nominally free African Americans and Chinese labourers, they all get pushed out of the frame. These should be as much a part of the background as men like Harden. If he killed a lot of people, or he was doing it in a time and place where life was hard and sometimes cheap. So, this could be a good story of redemption at Christmas. If this was a movie, it would be one of those bleak ones where there's no hero, but the protagonist eventually moves beyond his violent past.
history. It doesn't really work like that, though. Harden wasn't a successful lawyer, and he was arrested for illegally carrying various firearms. That's not surprising. He carried a lot of guns throughout his life, and still used them to perform trick shooting. Guns and Harden were inseparable. He began a relationship with a part-time prostitute named Madame Rose. She got into an argument with John Selman Jr. Harden was annoyed and argued with Selman Jr., allegedly pistol-whipping him. Jr. then went off to get his daddy, Constable John Selman Sr. Harden and Sr. got into an enormous argument, but parted without violence. Harden went to the saloon that night and played a game of cards and dice. Salman Sr. walked into the saloon and shot Harden in the head. He claimed Harden had seen him come in and gone for his guns first, so he had shot him through the eye in self-defence. Some witnesses claimed Salman Sr. just shot Harden in the back of the head without warning. A witness, Episcopal Minister E.H. Higgins, made the wry remark about the controversial shooting. Quote, A bullet in the front of the head demonstrates good marksmanship. A bullet to the back of the head demonstrates good judgment. End quote. As with so much to do with Harden, that quote may not be authentic. And it is notable that despite being a lawyer going to a card game, he was armed with a forty-one calibre Smith & Western Schofield double-action frontier revolver, model number three, as carried by Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid, and Pat Garrett, and many others. Whatever happened that night, Harden died with his boots on. I'm told that's important for manliness purposes. By the end of his career, Harden claimed he had killed 40 men. Modern historians think that according to analysis of contemporary sources, the actual total was around 27, which is still a lot of people. He died by the gun. And if you actually look at his biography, he didn't have a happy life. He wasn't a good person. Quite the reverse. He was a murderer and a racist. We shouldn't try to read back big historical themes onto people like Hardin. He didn't think of himself as a representative of a frontier way of life, slowly displaced by the advance of civilization until he found himself a man out of time, a gunfighter who outlived the age of gunfighters. Nor was he a champion of the displaced class against robber barons or railroad tycoons. He didn't claim to be a modern Robin Hood like Jesse James did. Harden was a killer. He was violent and responded to challenges with often lethal force. Take the incident of the pimp He was being robbed, and rather than fight his opponent or give him the money, then pull a gun on him to retrieve it or defend himself, he engineered a situation where his opponent was off guard and didn't know he was about to be shot. Salman Sr. was brought to trial for murder, but he claimed self-defence. I can see Salman Sr.'s predicament. People who crossed Harden routinely ended up dead. He was perhaps the fastest, most accurate and deadly gunman of the Old West, alongside Wild Bill Hickok maybe. He was still performing trick shooting 
after he was released from prison, and he was only a young man of forty. Salmon might well have thought that confronting Harden in a fair fight was suicide, and that if he didn't kill Harden, then he was a dead man walking. The jury were torn, and there was a hung verdict. Before the retrial, Salmon Sr. got into an argument with U.S. Marshal George Marshall over, you guessed it, a card game, and was shot dead. So the moral of today's cowboy story, as you sit and watch your Christmas western, is that clearly the Victorians were right. Card games are intrinsically evil and dangerous. Just look at how many people get killed playing them. Better stick to a nice safe game of Snapdragon instead. Okay, listeners, I hope you've had fun today and enjoyed our little adventure in the Old West. Last year we did Ghosts. This year we've done an action-adventure in the Old West. Who knows what we'll come up with next year, but I'm looking forward to it. Have a great Christmas, everyone. I hope you enjoy the time with your families, your friends, or whatever you care to do. Take care, and bye for now.